Well, we continue this morning in the series uh, that I've titled Asking for a Friend, which we're answering uh, some difficult questions of life and faith. As I mentioned uh, last week, if your uh, question didn't get included, there was no way that I could, I could hit all the questions. Uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me, and, and I'd love to visit about a number of good questions that we weren't able to get to this round. Uh, I'd love to visit in person about those. But, but today our topic is one that is at the very heart of the human experience. It's something that each and every one of us have wrestled with, have considered to some degree or another. This is a topic which has also been of great interest in popular culture. There's no shortage of theories and thoughts on this question. In fact, in my my research and preparation for this week, I even took some time to to read and to watch uh, some of what our world has said about the question of what happens after death. Uh, including an episode of the old cartoon Tom and Jerry. Some of you uh, have fond memories of Tom and Jerry. This episode, Tom dies and he rides the Heavenly Express to the pearly gates and he's denied entry unless he can get Jerry to sign a certificate of forgiveness for all of the years that Tom spent tormenting him. So he tries every tactic in the book to try to get Jerry to sign this certificate. I also watched a a classic episode of The Simpsons in which uh, Homer Simpson and his neighbor Ned Flanders get hit by a car and end up in heaven together. I didn't get any real inspiration from that, but I did laugh a little bit. And of course, uh, no sermon on this topic would be complete without listening to, uh, to Joe Diffie's song, Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox If I Die. A little bit of inspiration there uh, this morning. By the way, you can thank me later for getting that song stuck in your head. But let's take just a, a, a brief moment uh, to see what some uh, throughout history have said about death. Uh, the first one that I'll share is from Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was uh, the emperor of Rome in the second century AD. Uh, he said this, he said, It is not death that a man should fear, but he should fear never beginning to live. Or how about the great and ever humble Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill said, I'm prepared to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Then there's Will Rogers. Uh, Will Rogers chimed in on this. He said, "Uh, the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. And then finally, one of my favorite quotes and the, the serious one in this series is from St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, you will come to the fountain with whose dew you have already been sprinkled. Instead of the ray of light which was sent through slanting and winding ways into the heart of your darkness, you will see the light itself in all its purity and brightness. Beautiful understanding of death for the Christian. It's been said that perhaps my most important job as a pastor is to help you get ready to die. Death is something that apart from Christ's return, we will all face. You can't deny it. You can't escape it. You can't run away. And so it's, it's pretty important for us to understand what 
the scriptures teach about death and what follows it. And so that is the spark, the inspiration for the question that I received from many of you when we offered the opportunity for you to submit questions, some variety of this question of what happens when we die. We'll be looking at a number of scripture passages today. I want to focus our attention, though, on Paul's letters to the Corinthians. We find in those two letters what I think is perhaps the most thorough and helpful treatment of the topic in all of the scriptures. I'll be reading first, just to make things confusing, I'll be reading first from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and then from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would remind you that this is God's word to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then we will jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I will start reading this morning in verse 51. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Let's pray. God, your word is true and good and authoritative. And in it we find life and hope and meaning. Uh, So we ask that you would speak today and give us faith to believe what you have said. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, using these two passages of Scripture as a framework and a starting place from which to work, I want to today address the question that's before us. What happens when we die? 
Allow me to share four clear realities from Scripture and then address one major common question that came out in the questions that were submitted. First reality that I want to point us to today is that at death, the soul is separated from our mortal body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul uses the imagery of a tent to refer to this body. He says that if this body is destroyed, when this body breaks down, we have a building from God, an eternal house. And then he says, while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. In Romans 7, he uses a little different language. He, he refers to the body in Romans 7 as the body of death or the body that is subject to death. The soul is that which gives life and uniqueness and personality and identity to the body. Jesus refers to this distinction in Matthew chapter 10 when he encourages us not to fear those who can kill the body but are incapable of killing the soul. And then, of course, we see this distinction really clearly when Jesus is on the cross. The scripture tells us that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He committed his spirit into the hands of his father. His body remained nailed to that cross, but his soul or his spirit was with his father, separated from his body. Most simply defined, death is the moment at which your soul separates from your body. The moment foretold by God in Genesis chapter 3. You remember those words in Genesis chapter 3 when God declares to Adam, you are dust and to dust you will return. Now it's worth paying attention to those words from Genesis 3 because they actually offer us a little bit of a corrective of some common unbiblical assumptions that you hear among many Christians. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes you'll hear Christians say something regarding this distinction between body and soul, that they'll speak of it as if the soul is the real person and the body is just the place where the soul dwells. But that's not entirely consistent with how Scripture speaks of this issue. And it's not consistent with the creation account. God's words in Genesis 3, or our understanding of resurrection and what lies in front of us, Think, for example, about the creation account, about God creating mankind. God didn't gather together the pre-existing souls of Adam and Eve and say, hey, you, come with me to this garden and I will give you a body. No, Adam didn't exist before God fashioned his body and breathed life into it. It was at that moment that Adam was created, that Adam began to exist. He wasn't a soul who took on a body, his very existence as a human being is tied to his body. And so that's why in chapter 3, when God pronounces his judgment against sin, God says, not your body is dust. God says, you are dust. And to dust, you will return. And so certainly the breath of God, that eternal soul, is that which brings life and identity to the human person. But at the same time, to be human is to be 
embodied. Because of the corrupting power of sin, God in his mercy will allow us to die. We, we aren't sentenced uh, to eternity in this decomposing, uh, decaying body. It's the mercy of God. But, but he promises, and we'll talk about this later, he promises that one day we will have another body. At death, the soul is separated from our mortal body. The second reality that we see is that at death, we enter into the judgment of God. There's a great deal of confusion about the the timing and purpose of the judgment. In, In part, there's some confusion because there are a number of scripture passages that speak about God's judgment, but very few that lay it out in any sort of systematic or chronological way. Our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 25. He said that all will face the judgment. What we see in Scripture is that there seems to be, we might think of it as two types of judgment that take place. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, says it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. There's this this idea in Scripture of this instantaneous judgment that takes place upon our death. Of course, this makes sense because God sees and knows all things. He knows those who belong to him. The judgment isn't like a human courtroom where the judge has to do his best to figure out what is true and right and appropriate. And and those who have faith in Christ, who have received the forgiveness of sins, or to use Paul's language, those who have been justified by faith, enter immediately into the presence of God. And those who have rejected Christ, those who haven't repented of their sin, believed the gospel are, according to Scripture, in in hell, or uh, we might use the word Hades. For our purposes today, I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably. Understanding that the final and complete hell will come after that final judgment that we will talk about in a minute. The Bible speaks consistently of two groups of people at the judgment. Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats, or between those who have done what is good and those who have done what is evil. Or as Jesus would say in John chapter 12, there's this distinction between those who have believed his words and those who have not believed his words. And here's the good news for us today. In John chapter 5, Jesus gives us great clarity on the issue. Jesus says this in John chapter 5, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. So all who upon death, all people will face judgment, but all who are in Christ, all who believe the gospel, Jesus himself tells us will not be judged. The judgment has already been rendered. All people who are trusting in Christ will cross over from death into eternal life. But there's another understanding of judgment 
that we have to mention that we see in Scripture, and that is what I referred to earlier as the final judgment. Matthew chapter 25 and Revelation chapter 20 both speak of this uh, final judgment. After Christ returns, in those final moments, he will permanently separate the sheep from the goats. And he will pronounce his final sentence upon all who have rejected him. In some ways, we can think of this like a criminal case. The jury has already issued their verdict. And yet the condemned must wait for the judge to hand down his final ruling. And yet that illustration falls apart because Scripture says it's not just the guilty who stand before that final judgment seat, but those who were declared not guilty as well. All who are in Christ have been justified, Scripture tells us. As Paul declares, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of your sin and your failure has been absorbed by the cross of Christ. And so standing before the judgment throne, we have nothing to fear when we are in Christ. We will stand before judgment as if we had always obeyed. And at that final judgment, those of us who are in Christ will hear the gospel. We'll hear the judge hand down his gospel ruling. But for those who reject the Savior, Scripture says that the judgment throne is that moment at which the sentence is handed down. For those who die in Christ, the judgment is more like showing up at the courthouse to hear the judge open the will and settle the estate in which you've been promised a beautiful and eternal inheritance. No fear, just joyful anticipation of what has already been promised, of what has already been guaranteed. So at death, the soul is separated from our mortal body. We enter into the judgment of God. And third, we see this, that all who are trusting in Christ are immediately present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer instead to be away from the body and present with the Lord. So Paul sets up this reality for us that when we are here in this body, we are away from the Lord. But when we are away from this body, those who are trusting in Christ are present with the Lord. We see this same idea in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul's wrestling with this, whether he desires to stay or to go. And he says, uh, he says this, he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul certainly lived and taught this expectation that upon death, he would be in the presence of the Lord. This is reiterated again in Acts chapter 7. In case we don't believe Paul, let's hear from Stephen in the moments at which Stephen is about to be stoned to death for his faith in Christ. Acts chapter 7 verse 59 says this, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's last words are spoken with the assumption, with the belief 
that his soul or his spirit would be with Jesus upon his death. So it seems pretty clear that the New Testament understanding, the understanding of the apostles, was that upon death, those who die trusting in Christ, we will be in the presence of God. That Acts passage with Stephen did mention one common misunderstanding uh, that I want to mention uh, briefly this morning. How does the text conclude? Did Did you hear what it said? With Stephen, quote, falling asleep. Some have held the position that when we die, we don't actually go into the presence of God or go into hell, but that we sleep. And in fact, many throughout the history of the church have held this position that we enter into a state outside of the bounds of time in which we sleep until the resurrection on the last day. And to be clear, this isn't, that teaching isn't heresy. In fact, it doesn't make that much of a difference. If you're sleeping, you're not conscious uh, of time, and so you'll wake up at the resurrection with no idea of whether it was a day or a century or several millennia. But I think that those who hold that position are just trying to be too literalistic with that common metaphor of sleeping. When Scripture says that Stephen fell asleep, or when the Bible elsewhere refers to death as sleeping, it's a metaphor. It's a word picture given to us to remind us that death isn't eternal. We have many metaphors and idioms and word pictures in English for death. We might say, for example, that someone kicked the bucket or bit the dust or passed away, all of which aren't intended for us to read or to think about them in a literal way. And so just like we don't always come out and say in a blunt way that someone died, neither did folks in the first century. And so you end up with metaphors like he fell asleep that we aren't intended to take literally. So the general consensus, and I think the plainest reading of the scriptures, is to understand that when we die, believing in Christ, we are present with the Lord. The fourth reality that I want to mention this morning is this. That at death, we begin awaiting the bodily resurrection, the final judgment, and the new heavens, and the new earth. Now, depending upon your eschatology, depending upon how you understand the events and how they will unfold in the last days, you might understand these events to be essentially instantaneous or separated by many years. But, But either way, those who have died in Christ, are awaiting three primary things to take place. The bodily resurrection, the final judgment, and the recreation of all things. So let me hit on each of them uh, briefly. The first is the bodily resurrection. If you remember earlier, I mentioned that we were never created with the intention of being only a soul. At death, our soul is separated from our mortal perishable body, but in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, we heard this, that the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. Paul taught very specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 14, that there will be a bodily resurrection, and he argues that if you deny the bodily resurrection of all believers, that you actually deny the resurrection of Christ himself. When Jesus returns, all who have died will rise 
and will be given a new body. And that body will be, uh, Scripture says, imperishable, immortal. It will last for all of eternity. Our soul will once again be embodied as it was designed to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that on this day when Christ returns, those who have died in Christ will rise first. Paul also ties this promised resurrection to our baptism. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 6. Paul says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. He says that when we were baptized into Christ, we were buried with Christ. And he says, so it follows logically that we will also be raised with him, united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the great undoing of sin. When we will know and experience the goodness of God's perfect creation as he intended it to be. You know, we talk often in the modern church about going to heaven. But in reality, the scriptures place our hope not so much in the prospect of heaven, but in the reality of the coming resurrection. Second event that I want to mention uh, this morning to which we look forward is the final judgment. We mentioned this previously, and so I won't say a lot about this other than to make the note that in Revelation chapter 6, if we were to look at Revelation chapter 6, you'd see this scene in which the saints or the martyrs in the presence of God are crying out, how long? And what they're referring to, how long until the judgment? And this is not so much a longing for someone to be punished, but a longing for evil and wickedness and disease and death to be condemned forever. This is an anticipation of all things being made right, of evil forever being expelled to where it belongs. At the final judgment, all of the wickedness, all of the evil, all of the rebellion and sin and hatred and disease and hurt and abuse will be sent to hell. And that's worth anticipating. That's worth longing for. Again, I I dealt with the idea of the final judgment earlier, so now I want to move on to the third event to which those who die in Christ are anticipating, and that's the recreation of all things, or the, the new heavens and the new earth. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus said these words. He said, heaven and earth will pass away. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said the same thing. He said, the world is passing away. Or listen to this description in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Romans chapter 8, verse 19 and the verses following tell us that creation itself is groaning, awaiting its redemption. There's discussion, there's some disagreement about the manner in which all of this will take place. Whether there will actually be 
total destruction of this world or whether God will transform what he has already created, remake it as he has intended it to be. Either way, the point is that with wickedness and rebellion and sin and disease condemned to hell forever, God will recreate his perfect world, uniting heaven and earth as one, and God will dwell among the people. We see this waiting, this anticipation, maybe most clearly at the very end of the scriptures. Do you you remember how the scriptures end? With a promise from Jesus, I am coming. And then with this prayer of response, come Lord Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, come Lord Jesus. And that's the posture of all who understand what God has promised, whether living or whether in heaven today, anticipating, waiting for the recreation, the redemption of all things, for all to be made right again. We see the beautiful description of this recreation in Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read a a few verses from Revelation 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Our true hope. Our true longing is not just for heaven apart from this mortal body, but for the new heaven and the new earth when sin is no more and we are free to enjoy it for eternity with our glorified imperishable bodies as God has intended. No tears, no mourning, no pain, no death, no sin. That is the target. That is the sure and certain hope for all who believe. So let me recap briefly, and then we'll talk about another major question that came up. Four realities that I've mentioned. At death, the soul is separated from our mortal body. At death, we enter into the the judgment of God. At death, we are present with the Lord. At death, we begin awaiting the bodily resurrection, the final judgment in the new heavens and the new earth. And so now let's quickly address one more major question that came up as I was gathering questions for this series, and and that was related to the question of purgatory. The word purgatory is a word that comes from the same root word that we have in English, the word purge. It means a place of purification or, or purging from sin. As many of you know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that purgatory is a place where you go after death, and I'm quoting Now, from the the Roman Catholic Catechism, it says this, quote, you go there, quote, for purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Let me read that again. 
purification so as to receive the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. I'm going to deal with this head-on by being as clear and succinct as possible uh, this morning. And so I have six bullet points that I think will illustrate a biblical understanding of purgatory. First, there is no scriptural basis for an understanding of purgatory as taught by the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, or any other. No scriptural basis. Second, a passage in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, part of the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha, is typically the chief passage used when arguing for it. Third, to believe in purgatory is to deny that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Four, to believe in purgatory is to deny the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross for sinners. Five, purgatory is a false doctrine that appeals to human reason, to our desire for justice, and to cooperate with God for our salvation, and should therefore be rejected. And six, the teaching of purgatory is an essential piece of a fundraising model. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And it continues, as if we don't get it from that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from, again we see that word, all unrighteousness. It's the blood of Jesus that purifies us from sin and from all unrighteousness. You don't need your relative to pay money for the cleansing of your sin. You need only trust in Christ. You need only repent and turn to Jesus, whose blood shed on the cross is sufficient for all of your sin. And to believe otherwise is to deny Christ himself, to make a mockery of his sacrifice, to believe a lie from the father of lies. Those words might sound offensive, but a doctrine that explicitly teaches that Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough is anti-Christ in every way. It deserves to be dealt with in the harshest of terms. We do not, upon our death, drift into a place of punishment, awaiting a loved one to broker a lucrative enough deal with the church on our behalf. But rather, we enter into the loving care and presence of our Heavenly Father. Thanks be to God. In Matthew 25, we come across a passage that I think wraps up this overall question in such a helpful way. Jesus says something that is of great hope for all of us who are in Christ. As we conclude our time together today on this topic of what happens when we die, I want you to, I want you to hear and maybe meditate this week on these words from Jesus. These are words... Uh, speaking of that great and final judgment. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, so he has divided the sheep from the goats, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
I mentioned earlier that we might think of the great judgment as being more like the opening of a will. The judge announcing for us the contents of that will. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those are the words of Jesus to all who believe on that great judgment day. It is all by God's grace through faith. And so the call for all of us today is to believe the good news, to believe that Jesus' bloodshed really is enough to cleanse you from all sin, to purify you from all unrighteousness, to believe that we can live this life and at the end of this life be swallowed up by true life, by everlasting life. This is our confidence, the promise of God to us. In it we rest and in it we die, knowing that God will do all that he has promised, that he is true to his word. When you breathe your last, trusting in the promises of God, the Apostle Paul says you will be swallowed up by life. Let's pray. God, your word is true. And in it, we can place our full confidence and all of our hope. May your word bring comfort to all who are here this morning. That there is a sure and certain and absolute promise of eternal life for all who are trusting in Christ, for all who repent and believe the gospel. Lord, we pray that your word would deepen our trust, our faith, our hope, that when we die, we will be with you forever. Lord, if there are any here who are unsure of their relationship with you, unsure of what they believe, Lord, move in them to talk to to somebody this morning to leave here with full confidence in your promise to them. So, Lord, we worship you today. We have such a great reason to worship you for all that you have done, for all that you have promised to us. For the reminder that by faith we are assured of the inheritance that waits us. So Lord, to you be the honor and the glory and the praise today. We're so grateful for all that you've promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.